There's one a phenomenon called decision fatigue that just making a decision depletes your willpower. So the more decisions you make, the harder it is to make decisions. So we have a limited willpower. Yes, we do. It, it's like a muscle that you can strengthen it with more, with exercise and practice, but as you use it, it gets tired. Wow. I'm here with John Tierney. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> and we're going to talk about willpower and also about the power of bug, another one of his book. But willpower is one of very important topic in my life because I do a lot of uh, things that require willpower. And I think I, I got the hang of this, but I wanted to talk about this so I can explore more about this. So tell me about willpower. How do we develop it? How did you come to write about it? And yeah, tell me. OK, no, it's. Um um uh, the book willpower also it's got a chapter uh with someone like you david blaine um and, and i and i went and watched him do some of his feats and trying to understand how he manages to do this and you and, and i know you're going to try and break his record right i think <laughs> yeah i'm yeah. going to try to be more days buried alive than Boy, that, i can't imagine doing that i so, i salute your willpower for that <laughs> um well i got started on this because um you know, and you're right, this is a really important topic. I mean, you know, willpower was a bestseller. It's been translated into like 24 languages, you know. So, I, you know, and, and, and when you ask people around the world, what virtue would you like to have most? What's your biggest flaw? What do you want more of? Do you want to have more intelligence, more ambition, more whatever? The number one thing people say is, I wish I had more willpower, you know, because it takes willpower to do anything. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, everybody thinks they don't have enough. And and so I wrote this book with a, a, um, a very prominent, just a brilliant social psychologist named Rory Baumeister. And he discovered this very um, important thing called... Um, uh, 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 basically called ego depletion and 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 what he found was he did a, this fa a pretty famous experiment where he had students come into a laboratory and they would sit there and and as they were sitting there they would smell these delicious chocolate chip cookies being cooked you know they'd just been cooked they could smell it um, and then they were told, and then they were going to another room, and they would say that they were, that this was an experiment, and that they were being put in, and there was a plate of these new, freshly baked chocolate chip cookies, and there was also a plate of, of radishes. What radishes? Uh, radishes are these really tasteless kind of vegetables. Okay. You know, they, they're really not very good at all. <laughs> and they would have these two plates there. Um, and then and they would say and they would tell you know the students you are in the radish condition and that means that you can eat as many radishes as you want but you can't have the cookies and then the the student would just sit there alone in the room and they, there was the research group were watching secretly and they would get up and they'd look at the chocolate soup cookies they'd want it but most of them managed they sometimes would even pick them up and they'd look at it but oh. they would they could only eat the radishes so they had to exercise self-control for a little bit then they gave them some other tests um the, uh, um to see and they found that the that the students who had had to exercise all that self-control all that willpower not to eat the chocolate chip cookies they did significantly worse at self-control in other tasks the people that ate the cookies no the people that did not eat the cookies they resisted temptation 
They did not eat okay. it. But that but they discovered that that depleted their willpower. They had less willpower left for other tasks that require willpower oh, like, like for the day. Well, they would immediately test them there, but but they found they had less willpower. And this was and and this is called ego depletion oh. that, that you're using up your willpower. And this and, and so, so we have a limited willpower. Yes, we do. It, it's like a muscle that you can strengthen it with more with exercise and practice, but as you use it, it gets more tired. It gets tired. Wow. And so and, and so, for instance, <laughs> writing about David Blaine, he's somebody, and, and you do this also. You build up your willpower. You build up that muscle, but the more you do it, but as you you know as you use that muscle, it gets tired. It gets fatigued. Um, and, and this thing, it, and it comes in all kinds of ways. There's one uh, phenomenon called decision fatigue. That's just making a decision uh, depletes your willpower. So, um, and so people that, and, and, and so the more decisions you make, the harder it is to make decisions. And, yes. you know, there was a famous study of, uh, um, of, of, of judges when they would um, have to decide whether, you know, someone who was in prison was coming before the parole board to, and they would decide to, what do, parole board uh, the parole board is uh, does he stay in prison or does he go on parole do we okay. release him from prison early on parole and they found that w when they came in first thing in the morning a prisoner was more likely to get paroled because it's a hard decision to let a you know the easy decision is to say no keep him in prison you know that because i don't get in trouble if he goes out and commits a crime yeah, yeah. that's no problem but it's a harder decision to say let's do it but they found that the, the the prisoners who early in the morning when the judges were fresh you know the, you know the, it was easier for them to make a hard decision but then as the day wore on, they would just start saying, no, 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 That's they didn't want to decide. And then the really interesting thing was that they found that um, they would have a break and the judges would get some food, a snack, and there was also a lunch break. And right after they had some food, they were able to make decisions again. And this <laughs> is another of the discoveries that, you know, <laughs> that, that this muscle depends so that says a lot about free will <laughs> <laughs> well well you need energy and when you get this you know the energy in food that gives you a burst of, of, of new energy and, and, and you have more willpower and that's why you know dieting people always think of, of dieting as the well do you have good willpower can you resist eating and it's the classic example of willpower but it's also the hardest thing to do, really. It's the most difficult form of self-control yes. because if you don't eat, you don't have energy and you have less willpower. So it's, a, you know, it's very oh, that's, difficult, that's you know, so, so it's very difficult. <laughs> so, uh, but it, it, we, I think we all agree that we need more willpower and like this is an important topic, but let's talk about what you find, what you found how to acquire this skill and how to trick yourself to get more willpower or how all, how David Blaine got more willpower. Mm. Tell, teach us okay. how we can improve our okay. willpower. Well, one thing, you know, they did experiments where they would have students, uh, they tried different ways to improve people's willpower. And one thing they did, it, was, it sounds very simple. They would tell the students in the experiment, go home and for the next two weeks, just whenever you can, sit up straight. You know, you know, don't slouch. Just do that. It seems like a simple little thing to do. And they found when they came back two weeks later that these students actually did better on self-control tasks. 
you know, they would do experiments like how long can you hold your hand in, a, in ice cold water or um, how long can you squeeze one of those grips? You know, that takes self, you know, it takes willpower to do that. And they found that they improved it. They had built up that muscle. And that was how David Blaine and that's how you do it. You keep, you know, the more you do this, the more you build up that willpower. But the, you know, the simplest way, you know, there are very interesting studies where they looked at, uh, there were some done in Germany where they looked at people um, who had the most self-control, who were very, very good self-control in their lives. And they followed what they did and they tracked them all day long and they would, you know, ask them what they're doing and, um, and how they did it. And they found that these people their secret to self-control was that they didn't use they didn't make themselves have to use it very often they basically structured their lives the mic. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. they structured their lives so they didn't have to use it so you know they wouldn't keep ice cream in their freezer you know so they don't have to work you know resist that temptation they you know, they they didn't walk down the aisle in the supermarket with the, all the cookies and the potato chips. They, they and so they did that. And they, you know, there's a way. They, there's also called outsourcing self-control. For instance, it's hard to make yourself go out and, and jog or exercise. But if you schedule it with somebody else, you know, or you go to a gym or you have a personal trainer, then you have to do it because so you don't have to make yourself. Someone else is doing it. Can I give you an example of yes. this? Uh, it's been now three years, I think, that I'm exercising every other day, uh-huh. and I never failed on the to exercise. Really? And that exactly that is exactly what you are saying. It's not that I don't have a choice. I want to keep my track record. <laughs> it's, I don't choose to go and exercise. It's like it's just happening, and I, it's not like oh, I need motivation. It's, I can't not go. Well, that, but that's a tribute to your self-control <laughs> that you do. But that's a great way to do it. You know, you know, one thing, the, the basic steps in self-control are that you have to set a goal, set a clear goal, and then you monitor your progress. There is a, f- a phone ringing. No, no, it's not a problem. Okay. The people will f- have fun watching this segment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, so you have to set a goal and then you have to monitor your progress. Um, because so what do you mean by monitoring your progress? I mean, exactly? for instance, for you, I don't know if you write it down or not, but, but, but you know that every other day I have to do that. And you have a, in your head is I have to do this every day and you'll remember. Now, you know, other ways to do it are, you know, that you have a to-do list and you have to check things off every day. So, and, and you have these very clear things you have to check off. Uh, yes, because it's very easy to forget yes. to do things. So, right. No, you know, getting thing in getting things done. You know, have you heard of a book by David um, Allen? It's a great little book, a big best-selling book called Getting Things Done, and he has a lot of these tricks for um, basically, for you know, for getting things done. And one of the, you know, he has a thing like the two-minute rule that if you um, if there's a task you have to do and something comes up, if you can do it in less than two minutes, just do it right away and get it out of your yes. system, you know, yes, and do it. But yes. otherwise, you've got to keep a list of things and, and you just got to monitor and see at the end of every week, did I do this, did I do that? And I mean, a simple thing for weight control, there have been studies. If you simply weigh yourself every day and force yourself to look at that number, you're monitoring your weight, that makes a difference. Just, just that simple act of doing it. 
So what? So I guess this writing this book helped you to your personal life, right? It did. No, I mean it certainly <laughs> made me. Um, you know, there, there's an interesting thing called the Zagarnik effect. Um, that, and this was discovered by. Um, there were some psychologists um, in Europe, and they were. Um, they all went out to lunch uh, um, at a restaurant, and and the waiter took all their orders, and he didn't write anything down at all. He remembered everything. It was a big group, and they were very impressed. Well, after lunch, uh, one of them had forgotten uh, something, so uh, the waiter went back, and uh, the person went back and saw the waiter and said, uh, "You know," and and he said, "Well, of course he'll remember me and and everything." And the waiter uh, uh, looked at her and had no idea who she was, you know, didn't remember anything at all. And, and he said, well, how did you remember all those meals? And he said, I, I remember it, and then as soon as I, as, as I deliver it, it's out of my mind. You know, he just, it, it just his, you know, he clears his memory. And that's, and, and, and the psychologist was named Zagarnik who did it, and that's called the Zagarnik effect. And my co-author, Roy Baumeister, in our book, Willpower, you know, we talk about experiments he did about this. And, and, the, and, and the lesson of that is that an unfinished task lingers in your mind and, and it gets in the way of other things. Yes. You know, and so if you, and yes. um, so if there's something that you're doing it, you know, you know, David Allen likes to say that if you want to find God, but you need cat food, for food for your cat get the cat food first you know you've got you've got it you've got to you know get these things out of your mind uh, tell me about david blaine experience when you met him because he's one of my heroes so what did you learn about his willpower personally well how he does all this um, um i went down to the cayman islands when he was training to uh, to hold his breath how and, many years ago i can't remember it was um 10 years ago no longer than 10 10 15 you know maybe 2008 when he was on oprah i can't recall okay but uh um he was training to go on the oprah show and, and hold his breath underwater for 18 minutes and he and he was what training will power you need to do that exactly well i watched him it was interesting because we went down the cayman <laughs> islands where he was training and he was doing in the ocean and also in a pool And it's amazing how you can, you know, train yourself. I mean, his trainer taught me in half an hour, I held my breath for, th for three minutes and 41 seconds underwater. Oh, wow. I never imagined I could do it. And the trick is you have to completely relax. You just don't move any muscles. You don't, you don't use any oxygen or use very little. And, and I watched him do it in the pool for 16 minutes. He stopped just short of the world record because he wanted to break the world record on the oprah show really yes so you watched him doing that for 16 yeah he was just in the pool and he got i said no problem at all i never even felt any pain he had really done it <laughs> but then what happened when he went on the oprah show and, and, and you know they monitored him in the pool and his pulse rate would just go way way down he was completely relaxed but in the oprah show when he went on he's on national television you know the, the world's watching His pulse rate did not go down the way it had in the swimming pool, and oh. you know, and so you were watching that as well. Yes, uh, and and he said afterwards it was one of the most painful things he ever went through. He said it was just killing him because you know his pulse was too high, so it really was hurting him. And he just held on. He managed to hold on, but he said it was like getting just the worst, just getting kicked in the stomach. It was just horrible. <laughs> But he managed to hold on, and his secret was that he had built up his willpower muscle. You know, he'd done all, all these years, and, and he started as a young kid doing all these things. He'd deny himself, force him to do it, and 
you know, in the book, uh, Willpower, we also talk about Henry Morton Stanley, the explorer who went across Africa. And the stuff that he went through was just astonishing, the, the suffering, you know, getting the bugs, the heat, the getting, you know, you know, arrows shot at them. The whole time they were hungry, they had malaria, they had everything. And Stanley was someone who, like David Blaine, as a young boy, he would like make himself do without a meal. He would he would not eat, you know, food. He would he just built up that willpower muscle, you know. So now, I mean, so it's good, and so you can do these exercises yourself to you know to do it. But um, you, you know, but as I say, it's easier if you don't have to keep forcing yourself to do it. If there's you know mental tricks, and, and like you know, you talked about. One thing is to make something a rule, make it a habit, so you don't actually think you just do it. You know, whenever, um, you know, you know, like if you're going to eat ice cream, you can only do it at the kitchen table. You can't do it watching television. You know, <laughs> uh, and like for you, it's I have to do this every other day, and you just think about that. And once something becomes a rule, that you, um, it gets easier to follow. And and um, as a writer, one of my favorite rules is from Raymond Chandler, who wrote famous detective stories like The Big Sleep that have been turned into movies. And he had a very simple rule for writing. He would set aside four hours you know, in the morning. He would sit down. And he said he only had two rules. He said, number one, you don't have to write. Number two, you can't do anything else. <laughs> you know, so you know that you can't read, you can't write letters, you can't do it. You so can't. he taught himself. Well, he said basically, you get bored <laughs> enough that you do it. You know, and so and just avoiding all those things, and so you know, and, and he kind of removed the temptation, you know, with that rule to do it. And so people who can, if you can set up a rule and then you know, and then keep track of your progress. And another you know important thing to do is rewards yourself you know when you do when you you know set a goal and if you meet it really give yourself a nice reward you should celebrate it you know i'm i'm skeptical about that reward system because uh then sometimes you don't do it for the actual joyness of the task and you do it for the reward and it's like uh and it's like maybe the next time like when we give a, a child five dollars if they help the homeless person or something like that you we teach them that the act of kindness was not good enough mm -hmm. the, for yes. the joy and you the reward is the five dollars so so I, I'm, i'm confused about this reward system but i'm curious to hear well, that your, well that's your... a good example you say that you want people to do things because they are but um but i think for instance i mean for you doing your exercise routine i mean Maybe you like exercise, you know, but most people find doing it sort of a pain. And I think you should, you know, you should be, you know, reward yourself for doing it. And then, and it makes you want to do it. I, I mean, um, I think in general, you know, just, and, and also, I mean, I mean, having penalties too. I mean, that, I mean, the topic, what you say about rewards, you know, the topic of, of, of the next book that I did with Roy Baumeister about the power of bad, um, that one of the big topics we have in that is, is about penalties and rewards. Um, and the penalties work much better than rewards. Tell me about it. Okay. Well, the power of bad, you know, the subtitle is um, how the negativity effect rules us and how we can rule it. And the negativity effect is something that my co-author, Roy Baumeister, uh, discovered. Um, and he... You know, you know, psychologists had noticed, and economists had noticed also that in the 1980s that people cared more about 
um, losing money than making money. You know, the, when they gave people choices, losing a dollar hurt them much more than making a dollar. In fact, a lot of people would not make a bet unless unless they would get at least twice as much for it in return. They didn't want to risk the downside. And psychologists had noticed that uh, a few things like that a good bad imp- uh, a good first impression um, matters much less than a bad impression. You know that if you make a good impression, it makes a little bit of impact, but it's easy enough to overcome that. But well, a bad first impression really is very hard to get to get over that. So Roy looked in. And he looked through all the literature in psychology and sociology, economics, and he wanted to find an example. Well, when is a good thing stronger than a bad thing? When does it make more difference? And he was surprised to find out he couldn't find any examples. Oh, geez. Wherever he looked, bad was. <laughs> so he wrote a very famous paper called Bad is Stronger Than Good. And they just found in everything you talk about, in emotions, in bad emotions are more powerful, bad events are more powerful. You know, there's, you know, we talk about the, the, a trauma after something bad happens to you. You can suffer a trauma that will stay with you for life. Now, there's no opposite. There's no good event that will, there's no word to say something good happened to me and it stayed with me my whole life. There's no word, there's no opposite of the word trauma. Yes. Um, so Roy and I wrote this book, The Power of Bad, to talk about this negativity effect. And it, I mean, it. it it's easy to understand why we have this because it's it, it, evolution. It, yes, exactly. It helped our ancestors survive. It's much more important to pay attention to a threat. To you know, like it's more important to pay attention to a, a berry that will poison you than than to really enjoy a really good berry. You know, you you, you have to worry more. The people who didn't pay attention to lions and and dangerous animals are the ones who didn't survive. So you want to be very alert to threats. How how can use the to kind of help our lives like should try to not make bad <laughs> bad stuff to other people like or like we should not make good things or and just put effort on trying to avoid the bad like how we can help our lives with this right well um uh, we talk about something, uh, and we talk a, about a lot of the research in it, and and we come up with a, with a rough rule that you, when you look at at um, uh, you know, things about money, about how much you know, uh, how much losing a dollar matters versus gaining a dollar, um, or, or if you talk about is somebody depressed, you know, one way to do it is um, how many good days do you have for every bad day, you know, and. And if you have one good day and one bad day, you know, say in a relationship. I mean, in fact, when Roy was a young man, he was, he was, um, he had a romantic partner, who, you know, she was very, he loved her, and you know, they had wonderful times together. But she also just had this terrible temper, and there would be some really horrible days, and he couldn't. And on the good days, he was he was madly in love with her. On the other days, he wanted to get out, and he didn't know how to, you know, reconcile. What do I do? And so he started just a very crude thing. He started just at the end of every day, he would write down, was this a good day or was this a bad day? And he noticed after about six months that the ratio was staying pretty much the same. There were two good days for every bad day. And he kind of realized that's not good enough. You know, you have to, and, and you see this thing that in general, bad things, and this isn't a law of nature, but it's a rough guide that, Generally, 
bad things are th about three times as strong as good things. So you want to have more than three good things for every oh, bad thing. Oh, so you thing. want one bad thing, you need three good things. Well, well we say to be say four. Four, you know, four, you know, four, so, you know, four so you come out days. ahead. So we call it the rule of four, that you want to have, you know, so if you're late one time for a meeting, don't think that showing up early the next time will make it up. You've got to do it a lot. I think this is a great rule because when I was as well in a relationship, it's very difficult to identify if it's a healthy relationship yeah. or unhealthy relationship <laughs> when you are in the relationship. So just having this as a rule, oh, it's like, is how many bad things are, and like you don't want half bad or <laughs> you you want to have a lot more positive so I, and and it got me a lot of time to understand that i was kind of in a toxic relationship yeah, yeah. and i was like oh my god i can't be when i got out of it oh my god i can't believe how <laughs> but if i knew this rule i was going to be able maybe to to kind of understand that what is the right balance but we don't know what's the right balance maybe one person will say oh if it just out the good outweigh the negative then it's not good enough yeah right <laughs> the good has to be a lot there has to be a lot more good you know one there have been you know a bunch of studies by by people who, who track couples and you know one very simple measure is by the way it's very funny because your wife is Helen Fisher yes. that we had the previous podcast <laughs> and and she told me in the podcast to interview you so we have on the record that she said oh, your next podcast will be with my <laughs> husband and this is what we're doing now well that's a good thing <laughs> very no she's brilliant she really is and uh um no and we don't you know the the um and one of the ways the, the the people who study couples do is they just ask how how often do you have sex versus how often do you fight you know what's the ratio of sex to fighting and there are some couples that don't have very much sex but they don't fight either and there are some couples that have sex more often but they also fight a lot and it isn't so much how much sex you have but it's the ratio of of, of good to bad and you know that if you're if it's one sex for every fight that's that's not that you're not even that's a bad sign you want to have a lot more good than bad so you don't need four yeah. sex. <laughs> it's a rough god i think you want that and um the uh as you say also that you know because bad is so much stronger one of the first easiest things to do is just try to minimize the bad you know most of us um, you know, tend to think, and, um, and in the book, The Power of Bad, we talk about in novels, these couples who think, I do all these good things for you, but they don't realize what's really important is avoiding the bad. Drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That you, can, you can do good things, but it's really the bad stuff that, that will get you immediately. Just uh, cut out the bad stuff. Also with your team at work as well, yes. the same thing. And you can do a lot of good things for them, but like one bad thing can be so meaningful so for them so. they don't forget people don't forget it and, and and you know another thing we have a chapter in the book in the power of bad about bad apples in the workplace and there have been really interesting experiments that you know they have to have a team of workers get together you know four people had to work on a project and they trained um and they had you know somebody working with a confederate of the researcher who was an actor and he would join the group 
and they would have him be a bad apple and you know be basically a jerk and 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 he would act sometimes he was just um you know he was just a real jerk where he'd say obnoxious things to people like you know they, this was a group of business students but they, this was scheduled for him to do all yeah, this yeah he was yeah, to yeah, do yeah. this and then they watched um and you know sometimes he would just be he would be a jerk um the where um he, these were business students and and they were supposed to come up with an idea for a new company and and somebody would have an idea and he would go is this your first business course you know he would just say something really like i, oh, I can't believe it you go are you serious <laughs> and and um, and then sometimes he would be a slacker that's another kind of a bad apple where he just kind of lay back and he would just take out his phone he wouldn't contribute at all and then sometimes he would just be really depressed um you know he'd like be like putting his head down on the and, and he got himself in a mood for this by he would try to imagine his cat had died you know and he just be like this and the really interesting thing that happened was that um by the end of it it was so contagious what he did that once he started being a jerk to people everyone started being a jerk to people not just back to him they would do it and once he started slacking off I, the other people would start slacking off and so <coughs> and so and what they found was that that having one bad person on your team would just sink the team and and they could not compensate even if you had Dro- drop the mic i guess <laughs> but even if you had one bad person could not compensate you know one star one great worker could not compensate for one bad person yeah and uh, you know the, you know there's another there's a book we talk about um called the no asshole rule which is basically when you're hiring people we just don't want to the important thing is don't hire bad people Yes and I found that to be very 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 true in my team because I have a team of seven people and like when you hire one person um, he might be good at his job but when he's in a group and he's bad with other people and it's like, it's like for exactly that reason that you are describing is he might be the best in his work but if he can if he's bad with the other people and he create problems then it's outweigh all the other good stuff that he does and makes him like uh, net negative to the group so. yeah that is exactly true you know the <laughs> the um and you know and so people don't pay enough attention to it and then if you make a mistake and you hire you know somebody you know who was wrong for the job then you know you got to get rid of them i mean but it's also important to do it you know and don't do it in a bad way because i mean it's, it was your mistake to hire them you know i mean yes, you know it wasn't true. necessarily there and so you know because one thing if you fire somebody in a nasty way you know companies that suddenly really just you know are really ruthless about it that will be remembered by everybody else at that job about yes. you. So you and should that's be the decent. bad thing that <laughs> yeah. we're talking about. That's yeah, another everybody will remember how, how you treated that worker. Yes. So, you know, I mean, give them, you know, help them find a job, severance pay, whatever. You should be good about it, but you've got, you can't let them because it'll just poison the whole atmosphere. Yes, so. that's, uh, that's, that's crazy. But uh, tell, tell me more about the, the power of bad in the world. Is the world bad is the word good is the uh, wo- world that we are living what did you learn about the badness um, of the well people? we have it you know the, um be, our brains are just so wired to focus on the bad and 
and so and we think that the world is you know people tend to think the world is getting worse because we're just oh you see this oh there's a war there's this there's that and and we have a chapter that i think in fact this chapter was written just before the book was published just before the covid pandemic about two months before it and and the covid is the perfect example of what happened but, but we have a chapter called the crisis crisis and the crisis crisis is the fact that there is this whole industry that of the media um, of some activists of academics that their whole business we call them the merchants of bad their whole business is to tap into that primal part of your brain that responds to bad things and constantly emphasize the bad constantly you, know, you are a brain. journalist uh, yes, your I am. Life. my my <laughs> business is terrible it's built on it you know the old saying if it bleeds it leads you know that bad news is you know that no the good news is no news um that all we care about is because that's the easiest way to get people's attention something's bad happening something's bad going to happen to you you know the, the world's terrible and we instantly respond because our brains are we have to be be very alert to threats and what we don't realize now is you know as you said earlier you know there's a good evolutionary reason for this you you know in the ancient savanna the hunter you had to pay attention to threats but the world today is a very safe place and yes. we have never had things so good and you know almost every long-term trend is getting better people live longer you know last century half the people in the world didn't get enough food now 90% do you know people couldn't most people couldn't read now they do you know people have some you know poverty has just plummeted around the world and it's interesting when you do but when you turn on the news oh, you, just... you don't get this picture of the world and i'm very afraid i'm listening to a book now and it talks about like how uh, what we believe can become a self-fulfilling prophecy so if we believe that the world is bad we are going to treat everyone that is bad and that's i i believe a huge problem because whatever we our beliefs are we're going to become Exactly. No, that's very, you know, I mean, I know that you had Lenore Skenazy about the free range kids and it was there was, you know, one story about a child, you know, who was abducted and the, and the media just terrified. Her. So parents are all terrified and now they won't let their children walk to school. They won't do. And the kids are missing out on so much in life because they think the world is filled with all these people who want yes. to abduct them. And it's crazy. You know, for the crisis crisis, we have. Um, you know three guiding principles of it um, the, 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 which is number one the world will always seem to be in crisis yes number two <laughs> the crisis is never as bad as it sounds and number three is the solution could easily make things worse because what happens is oh, oh you know it happens over COVID. and over <laughs> exactly. i mean covid was a real problem but The, the news media, my 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 fellow journalists, you know, <laughs> scared everybody, <laughs> scared everybody into you know this is the worst thing ever. It's going to kill everyone and nobody. And and we it was very clear early on that it was not really a, for healthy young people. This was not really a threat, um, but everybody was terrified. And and we did all these things that hurt people, and it ended up you know. I mean, you know, it, it's quite possible that the lockdowns and the, you know, and the school closures will end up costing more lives than COVID did. You know, we had people, we had all these mental health issues. We had people 
you know, heart attacks, diabetes, people weren't getting treated, you know, and I mean, we just overreacted and the, and the solution made things so much worse that, and there was, there, you know, it was great for the ratings of the TV networks and for the mainstream media that yeah, was, was everybody so turning much money at that point. Right. Everybody was doing it and watching it and just terrifying themselves. And nobody ever put this in perspective and said, yes, if you're older, you should worry about this. If you're younger, it's not really, you know, it's not something um, uh, uh, that's going to kill you. And it's like the flu for young people, um, mostly. I mean, if you, there are some, there are special cases, but but this is, but there is this whole industry, as we call them, you know, the merchants of bad, who make a living scaring people about these things. And so you think everything, you know, there's been, if you look at the last century, there's just been one scare after another in the 19. 60s and 70s there was the population crisis where suddenly every you know we were going to have mass starvation billions of people were supposed to starve to death because population was growing it was completely false but it led to some terrible things where where, where women millions of women were sterilized and you know we can't let them have children you know china adopted this one child policy now where and now they have a shortage of workers. Fucking uh, stupid people of the world. <laughs> now, well, you know, but I mean, in a way, you understand how people followed. I mean, I was amazed in the United States that everybody just submitted to, oh, sure, we'll lock down, we'll stay in our home, we'll close our schools, we won't go to church, we won't go to restaurants. The most free country in the world. And every they just surrendered all these freedoms. But I mean, it, you know, and, and I, I'm disappointed in my fellow Americans, but also... You know, they were being told by the government and by the, the, you know, the mainstream media, this is the science, you know, you have to do all this. And they trusted them. And I think one of the consequences of the pandemic is people, you know, just do not trust the media, you know, even less than before. I, I saw a statistic that when they survey people around the world and ask them how much trust do you have in the news media, that the, that the lowest is in the United States. And, yeah, and I think it's something like, you know, three quarters of people do not trust the media. And so they 75 percent of the it's people. something like that. Yeah. And and it, they shouldn't. I mean, you know, we got, you know, two years of lies on COVID. And uh, I mean, I was writing I was railing against, you know, I write for City Journal, the, um, the website in the magazine. And in City Journal, I was writing early on the lockdowns. Wait, we have to balance. And there were good scientists who were saying, wait a minute, you know, it, we can't just worry about one virus. We have to look at all of society. We, we have to look at the effect on children. We can't have children miss school. Um, we have to think about the big picture. But everybody was, was just focused on that. And so, I mean, you know, the one bit of good news I have on this, I think, is that, um, is that, you know, social media, you know, and podcasters like you, um, you know, are a great alternative to the mainstream media. You know, people complain about, oh, social media is so negative, it's terrible. And of course, there's bad stuff that happens there. We know cancel culture and all that. But there's interesting research that we talk about in The Power of Bad that when people share things on social media, you know, some negative stuff gets shared quickly. But it's actually people are much more positive in sharing stuff than than they are negative. And the positive stuff, you know, you know, like the you know the hugs that you do and the Mr. Beast. These things really spread widely because you know people. Now the mainstream media, if you're trying to reach a mass audience, the easiest way to do that is to hit this primal part yes. of the brain that's afraid. And everybody has the same fears. We're all afraid of dying. We're all afraid yeah, yeah. of this. 
But, the, you know, the, the good parts, you know, people's desire for higher good things, you know, you know, maybe you're interested in history, you're interested in science, you're interested in, in the arts. These tend to be more, they're individual, they're smaller in niches. So, but, and so on, on the web, you find all these great little groups that are discussing, you know, Civil War history, they're discussing, you know, modern art, they're discussing this, but it's not a mass, but so the mainstream media though has, is always going for the mass audience. So the easiest thing is we, we scare them with bad stuff, but the rest of social media, people tend to share, people don't send, you know, their friends pictures of a terrorist attack, you know, a grisly picture or a child who was murdered. You send a picture of, oh, isn't this a cool video? Isn't this, isn't this beautiful? Isn't but it's, this... a, it's a mix of both. Oh, it's as, definitely uh, a mix. It's well. definitely and a mix. And I think because my job is to create all these viral videos, I think if I was going to uh, use the bad uh -huh. method, like, oh, whatever, I, I prank this girl and like she cried and like this uh, and she started punching me later or uh -huh. whatever the thing. If I used this method to hook people to bring them in my video, I think it's a lot more easier and I was going to be probably a lot more successful in views. But I think is that, but I didn't try it because I don't want to do that. Uh -huh. But, uh, but, but uh, this is what uh, Chris Anderson was talking yes, about yes. Uh, as well. That he uh, he he believes that uh, uh, with Mr. Beast that because his his theme is to give money and to right, uh, right. to be good and kind to people, uh, he he has faith in humanity because that we that's because we see who is the biggest YouTuber in the world so whatever he does is kind of a reflection of what we people like right so i think that's optimistic right no I, and i think i'm um, in the power of bad we discussed some of the research where they, they've tried to balance this and and there is evidence that bad stuff i mean if you do something really bad or a really mean prank that that may get an instant reaction and it will spread some but uh, the research we cite in the book is shows that over the long haul, the positive stuff tends to spread more. You know, the, yes. the, you maybe know, short term the, thing than yeah, negativity. Yeah. Thing right. It's a very easy yes. way to get a quick hit. Yes. But if you want to really develop a lasting audience, then and, you know, and I mean, and on the larger scale, I mean, the good news in the world is, as I've said, every positive trend, virtually every trend in the world is getting better. You know, the air is cleaner, the. Um, I mean, climate change is a problem, but, you know, again, people have said, oh, it's the end of the world, you know, we're not going to, and I mean, the temperature getting warmer a couple of degrees, we've survived a lot worse. Okay. You know? <laughs> and I mean, I don't want to get into that debate, but, but I, I there's basically. to, like, <laughs> <laughs> but because this is an interesting perspective that you have. And also, I, I know that you have a famous article about masks. Yes. Uh, and I'm curious for you to tell me more about that. And later we can dive into recycling as well <laughs> and all the fun right. stuff. Well, I guess on this good, bad theme, I'd say that in general, things, most trends are positive. If you look, people live longer, they're healthier, they're wealthier, you know, that. And, and that's because a lot more good things happen every day than bad things. And, you know, they, we don't see them on the news, yes. but there are all these good things happening. And, and I think over the long haul, I'm confident that, that that will keep going. So you are confident about the future? Of, I, I mean, I'm hopeful world. about the future. Yes, I mean, I think, I mean, I think there are these some institutions that the, these merchants of bad, you know, they, they want to stay in business and they'll keep trying to scare us. But 
I think as people get more and more choices and we get smarter about, you know, how to use social media, how to do things that, I mean, during the pandemic, for instance, if you watch the mainstream media, it was nothing but here's how many people died today of COVID. You've got to wear a mask. You've got oh, to stay home. Disgusting. You've got to lock down. Don't let your kids go to school, all this. But if you looked at the web, at, you know, places like City Journal, right? But there were, and there were new websites like the Daily Skeptic that came up that were saying, wait a minute, let's actually talk to some real scientists and see what they say. And there were these scientists, the great Barrington scientists who suddenly got huge followings on Twitter by saying, wait a minute, let's look at the research, you know, that before COVID, before the pandemic, the plans were, you know, the world's leading experts had said, even if we had a pandemic as bad as the 1918 Spanish flu, we shouldn't lock down, we shouldn't wear masks because there's no evidence those things work. And you could find that on the web. And I think more and more people are gonna, you know, we just have to be careful. And one of the lessons in the book in The Power of Bad we talk about is you have to curate your newsfeed, you know, that you should try to set it up so the people you follow send positive things rather than negative things. Don't don't get bogged down. It's and, like we said in the willpower thing, you kind of put, uh, you don't, because you don't want to make choices every day. And to, yes. So set it up with a good, follow the, the more positive, people, positive yeah. stuff. And like, yeah. so you don't need to make those decisions in the future. And you just consume the better stuff. And you can cross-correct it over time. And right, right. No, no, it's really, I mean, mass media, when you watch the, you know, the news channels, you know, like Fox or MSNBC, these things, they make a living, but it's always, can you believe what the other side did? Can you believe how stupid, how evil they are? And they do go back and forth and they get an audience, but, you know, um, you know, and it's worth knowing what's going on some, but if you just spend your day thinking, oh, they're all so awful, they're all so crazy, the other side, the world's going to hell. But most people are are not, you know. I mean, for all the you know the worries we have about things are getting so extreme, so polarized. Well, the, you know, the, and we have we talk about this in the power of bad that there is polarization, you know, political polarization. But it's really among the elites. It's among you know, it's among journalists, politicians. It's among these elite people that you see on the cable news channels, and the average voter in the United States hasn't really changed that much. People still are sort of have moderate views on most things, but they just keep seeing the extremes and they think things are worse than they really are. Yeah, and what you consume, this is what the perception of the, of the world that you have. Right. So right. It's, uh, it's scary. <laughs> Hopefully we can find more ways to like, to, are you optimistic about like Elon Musk with Twitter? Mm-hmm. Like, buying it Twitter and like maybe what what do you think about that? Whole I think thing? it's great. I think it's great that you want to have, you know, an encouraging things. You know, the censorship is really bad. I mean, during the pandemic, I wrote um, an article about the harms of masking. You know, the, there's all this evidence, dozens of studies. You know, it's not good for kids. You know, you're not it's not there's it's bad psychologically, socially. There's some medical problems something called mask-induced exhaustion syndrome. It's obviously not healthy to do it. And I just pointed out, we have to consider this. And, and plus, there was no evidence. And I wrote again recently that, you know, there's the latest evidence is that they, didn't, they made no difference. But um, when I wrote that, Facebook, you know, censored the article. They, oh, they labeled really? it. They said, this is partly false. Um, and there was nothing at all false that I wrote. I was citing peer-reviewed research, but they had this, 
group yes. that was just saying, no, you can't say anything different from the party line on this. And th that was happening. And I think it's great that and Twitter was doing that kind of thing where, and you know, the the scientists who were say, who were questioning lockdowns and saying, well, what's the, you know, they were getting, you know, censored on Twitter in one way or another. It's when you have all these media like censoring and like putting all these things, like they don't let the, the word uh, and the people mm -hmm. do like they don't yeah. let the debate play it. I know. And they play a big role in, in these things because they they are our world right, now. Right. So when they say oh no to this, to your article yeah, or yeah. to this thing, it's like they yeah. So I'm I don't know. I I I don't know about Elon Musk by Twitter. I'm very optimistic as mm -hmm. well, but like it's a difficult problem to no, solve. No, it is it. a problem and because the, the, those platforms are kind of, they're sort of monopolies in a way. But I also, I mean, I think one good thing about, you know, freedom and free market system is that if you start really, you know, that, I mean, Facebook's already losing, you know, it's been losing market share to other platforms. As long as, as long as we allow free competition, as long as, you know, we, we have different things, you know, then I, th I mean, the government can censor things, but... I think in the marketplace, eventually, it's just not a very good strategy, you know, that if you start censoring a lot, people will go elsewhere. And the mainstream media has been, I mean, they've been losing a huge share of the audience. You know, people don't trust them, and they, so they go elsewhere. And that's, so I think that's why I guess I'm optimistic over the Do you the think haul. the government should intervene with no, uh, I mean, I, uh, censor stuff or? No, I, well, I mean, certainly the government and people, not, you know, it, it, it's come out with Twitter that the government was pressuring Twitter to do that. And that's clearly wrong. I mean, and that's, you know, that violates the, the First Amendment. And I think that that should certainly stop. And the people who did it should be punished. Um, the as far as the government trying to regulate it, I'm, you know, there might be there might be some things that could be done to to do it, but I'm very skeptical. I mean, again, it's the rule of the crisis crisis. You know, the solution could easily make things worse. And whenever the government gets involved- I will always and, remember this. The solution <laughs> can always make things, make things yeah, worse. So yeah. so, it's crazy if you think about it. Like, the solution can be even worse <laughs> than, the, than the actual problem. So. Well, it, well, it happens all the time. We, are, we just constantly, you know, during the energy crisis of the 1970s, you know, because everybody thought, oh, we're running out of, we're not going to have any oil anymore. We're going to run out. And people have been saying this for like, you know, hundreds of years. Oh, we're going to run out of energy. And we never do. Um, but they they did some of these things. And then people also got the big scare about, oh, nuclear power is so dangerous. We have to do it. So as a result of, of those overreactions, um, but, uh, because they thought that we're running out of natural gas, they 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 basically in the United States they stopped uh, utilities from using natural gas and they made them use coal. So that made global warming worse because there's more carbon. And by shutting down nuclear plants and 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 ham, you know now I mean that's a way you know that's made global warming worse too. So we overreacted to one problem and we made another problem worse. So, do, what do you think about this? Do you think it's as big of as you don't think it's as big of a problem this energy thing that uh, and the renewable energy that, and all these uh, scarcity that we have about the climate will 
start uh, climate will warm up and we're going to have problems what do you think about this you don't think it's as big as a problem as it's well projected i mean this us. rule of the crisis crisis it's never as bad as it seems because you have this the merchants of bad you have the media and you have activists who are always going to exaggerate the problem now i mean you know the greenhouse effect is real the climate has been warming um and you know so i don't i don't deny it's happening and i think it's something that that we should um worry about you know we should think about and do research about and look for ways i mean the obvious solution right now is we should have more nuclear power because you're not putting carbon in the atmosphere um and it's ironic that so many of the people who claim what do you mean you are not so how does nuclear power helps the environment exactly because it's not carbon? it's not putting carbon into the atmosphere ah, you, you're not burning you're not okay, burning oil okay. you're not burning fossil okay. fuels you're um you know it's it's really the it's the only way at the moment the only practical way to generate reliable large amounts of power and i mean you know it's um uh, it's possible with solar power there'll be some advances that it will work better but right now solar power and windmills are just i mean it's fine if people want to use them but they're not very reliable they're they're very they're expensive um they they have their own environmental problems you know you you cover the landscape with windmills do, do you really want to do that to a natural landscape um so so many of the solutions there to try and do this are not you know are making things worse and and they're not really addressing the problem so and i think that you know the idea that we have to start banning cars with gasoline and this it's just an overreaction to it and i mean i think it's it's really you know there are the last i checked there are almost a billion people in the world mostly in africa that don't have electricity and to me to say we're going to ban fossil fuels with the you know and it's basically telling these people well you know we use fossil fuels to get rich but you don't get it you know you can have a windmill um it's just i i think that's immoral so i mean i think so what you how, how does that place out to uh, Afri- because we provide them the the resources right how uh, can you explain maybe the problem with africa because i don't understand so one billion people they don't have electricity yes and what the what does that have to do with what you were talking well, because, about with because the west the world bank and the united states are pressuring all these countries we don't want you to you know to use oh. fossil fuels and you know we don't want you to use you know there have been people you know some terrible examples of farm of food shortages because we don't want you to use fertilizer we don't want you to use this the stuff that you know that we all use to get food and to become rich but we don't but we want you to be sustainable but it's you know the sustainable stuff is it tends to be much more expensive and it has other problems and and i think it's it, that it's irresponsible and you need to get to a point that you make uh, to be sustainable and improve and then you can use the renewable energies or all this stuff and like focus on that but this is what you are pointed out that the united states is like so fortunate with all this stuff and now they can transition because they have all the money and they, they are right. rich but all the other countries is difficult for them to do that so to force them to do it might create more problems oh it does it means people uh, that yeah. problems that this, the solution can bring more problems <laughs> yes well no i mean you have people who, you know who won't have electricity that they won't have vehicles to get to the hospital they won't you know i mean the best you know anti-poverty measure the best thing for anyone's health is to become rich you know then you can afford doctors medicine healthy food 
healthy air, all this stuff. And But you have to become rich to do that. And the way that we did it in the West was through fossil fuels. And um, I mean, I, I, at some point, I think fossil fuels will be, you know, what will phase out. We may be having nuclear energy or um, something else. But um, to say we're going to suddenly stop this is, is just, I think it's great. And it's completely impractical. I mean, California, they're talking about banning all cars with gasoline and making everyone drive electric cars. They don't have enough electricity now. They're having brownouts. They can't even, where are all these cars going to get their electricity? From windmills? I don't think so. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and it's been crazy that we've been shutting nuclear plants when we need that electricity. So, I mean, I just think you have to be practical about this. And, and so much of, uh, I mean, there's always been this sort of hysteria on environmentalism. I mean, everybody wants a cleaner environment. We all want clean air. We want... We want to preserve wildlife. And, you know, there's the trends there are really good. We have, you know, the amount of forests in the world has been getting bigger, you, you know. Oh, growing. Really? Yes, because, we, because farmers are so efficient. United States has much more forest land, much more natural land than it used to have. I mean, when you drive up and down the East Coast here, you see all these forests. That all used to be farmland. But we don't need it anymore because our farmers produce so much food on so yeah. little land that's that they do it. And that's happening in the rest of the world. In fact, people say that, that we're probably right now at what they call peak farmland. That from now on, the amount of farmland in the world is going to be decreasing. Oh, that's Even interesting. Even though you know, we'll be eating more food, but it'll come from you know, more efficient farms. So I, I love I love all your ideas because they are a bit kind of radical to what we they are telling us. Is they present like a very different view that what is, is normal mm -hmm. and like one similar idea that you have is about recycling. <laughs> that it's 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 bad to do recycling, right? Well, well it's a waste. It's very wasteful, you know. Um, you know, recycling, it's a solution in search of a problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that, you know, um, the article that I wrote for the New York Times uh, in 1996, and it set a record for hate mail at the New York Times. It was the cover story of the magazine. I, I could show it to you. It's called Recycling is Garbage. And, you know, and I just looked at the, at the facts about recycling. And the whole movement began... Um, in, in, in the 1980s because there was one garbage barge. Do you, I don't know if you know the history of this or not, but there was one garbage barge that from a town on Long Island near here, and they wanted to ship their um, garbage to a dump down somewhere else, and, they, and, and the place wouldn't take it, and it became a big media thing, like nobody wanted to take this garbage. Um, and so suddenly it became this thing, we're running out of places to bury our garbage. We're all going to be buried in garbage. And there was also this idea that we're running out of everything. We're going to run out of, out of metals. We're going to run out of, of, of oil. We're going to run out of this. And, you know, we have to save all this. And these things kind of make intuitive sense. Well, yeah, well, I guess we're going to run out of copper, right? There's only so much copper in the ground and the population is getting bigger. But our intuition is wrong, you know, that if you look at the long history of oil and energy and everything, um, and you go back thousands of years, and in, in, in the last few centuries, it's very clear, we don't run out of things because, you know, we get so much, we get so much better at finding new supplies and at finding substitutes. So that's why the price of energy 
people used to have to work in you know, there's some famous charts that you know that if you wanted to have one hour of light from a candle um, or from oil in the past you know the typical worker had to work I, I remember you know he had to work many hours to do that or maybe even weeks at some point today if you want one hour of light at night it's like a fraction of a second it takes to you know to pay for that for a typical worker because we keep finding new ways to do things so we're not running out of these materials i wrote an, uh, an article for the new york times about a famous bet um that this ecologist julian simon he, he made in 1980 and he said if you think we're running out of anything anything at all energy anything um you pick anything you want and, and any date in the future and i bet you it will be cheaper then than it is now and Paul Ehrlich, I don't know if you've heard of him, he was this famous doomsayer ecologist who said we're all going to starve to death because he wrote a book called The Population Bomb. So he and, he and uh, some, another scientist, John Ehrlich, who later became uh, President Obama's science advisor, they picked five metals, tin and copper and I think zinc, and they picked 10 years later in 1990. And sure enough, everything was cheaper, you know, because... Copper, you know, people used to think in the 1940s, they said, we're going to run out of copper. But if we were going to run out, it was going to become more expensive, right? It gets more expensive. And so people, because they either look and, and, they, and they find new supplies or they find substitutes. You know, people in the 1940s were saying, we're going to run out. There'll be wars over tin because we won't have any cans anymore to put our food in. Well, nobody uses, you know, tin can. Now we use, uh, you know, plastic bags and other things. People think we need all this copper for telephone wires. Well, no, you know, we have wireless phones now. We don't need that copper wire anymore. So that that's why these things happen. And then people also had the idea, aside from the fact that we're going to run out of all this stuff, so we have to save it all, um, that there's no place to bury it anymore. And... If you looked, if you thought about it for, uh, you know, about the numbers at all, this never made any sense. That if you took all the garbage that Americans will generate for the next thousand years, and if you think of the United States as a football or a soccer pitch for your international audience, you know, that um, if you think, uh, you know, think of all the open land we have now, all the garbage that we generate in the next thousand years would fit in about one inch of that field you know you basically just put it in a landfill you cover it up it becomes a park or a golf course or something there's plenty of room to bury this so uh, so you think that it's not w worth it at all to recycle anything well there are some things that it makes sense to recycle and you know before the whole recycling movement began there was recycling going you know people would recycle metals some you know aluminum cans for instance you know it's it can be profitable because it takes a lot of energy to make aluminum so if you if you take an aluminum can and you reprocess it it saves energy and it saves money if it's done well but um and you know i mean we don't throw away cars when we're done with them we sell them to someone they, they get reused so people have always recycled things and in very poor countries you know you have the poorest people going through you know junkyards picking out stuff um uh, doing that so um you know it does make sense to, to recycle some things but the whole movement began we have to save everything and it never made any sense to to recycle i had one girlfriend that was uh, she had zero waste mm -hmm. so she was even when she was doing fruits or something she was putting all the the 
banana things on the freezer on the freezer and she mm. was like throwing them in the fields for the plants and like she was really had tried to hard she really had tried to hard zero waste uh-huh. and that was like a big kind of burden in her life as well yeah so it's like oh everything i have to pull collect everything take it my rubbish at home and like find ways to use them or whatever so do so you think she did it pointlessly? Well, for, you know, for, I mean, it's kind of a religion, and, if, and you know, you know, for many people, for really devout Greens, it's like a sacrament in their religion. You know, we're doing, and if it makes you feel good, do it. But you know, it's not. I mean, one thing I try to say to people is, all this stuff it came out of the ground. Why not just put it back in the ground? You know, we don't. Um, so, so you believe that our energy. We can't do that, but our energy is more efficient spent elsewhere. Yes, and and our so, money. I mean, for instance, New York City, when it started the recycling program in about 1990, it um, it it expected that it was going to save money doing this. You know, that it was going to save a lot of money every year because we'll get this stuff, and instead of paying to put it in a landfill, we'll sell it, and we'll get so much money. Well, in fact. It costs much more money to, to recycle it, you know, we, and, and <laughs> than it would to put in a landfill. And I think it's something like it could save hundreds of millions of dollars every year if it just put stuff in a landfill. And, so, and and that money could it could go for schools, for parks, for for other things. What what is it? to burn them? This is the solution to burn them, not to throw them, not to put to burn them. This is the well, you can burn them. Um, I mean, in, in in you know, in northern European countries, they have very clean incinerators that that turn it you know that turn waste into energy, and they have very few pollutants at all. Um, and that can make and so that can make sense. Um, the cheapest thing, especially in the United States, is is just to put it in a landfill and cover it up. So that's so like put it underground and cover it up. This yeah, is... and then it beca- and then it turns into a park afterwards. You know where the U.S. Open tennis championship is played? That's an old landfill. You know they and 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 today the landfills have these have these very strict environmentals. They have linings. They're monitored. You know the stuff doesn't leak. It just sits there. Okay, and after years, it starts, becomes one with the ground. Well, it just sits there. It's like, I mean, it all came out of the ground, and now it's, you know, for instance, I mean, all the plastic bottles that, that, that you have, that that was probably natural gas or oil, you know, that was in the ground, and now you, you put it back in. You know, and people, you know, now people say, well, recycling is good because it reduces carbon emissions, um, and that's good for climate change, but... It, there, it's such an inefficient way to do it. I mean, one example, you know, I did a, um, a follow-up article for the New York Times um, several years ago, and we looked at that, you know, one plastic bottle that you get, um, that if you wanted to make up for the carbon that, that you use for the one passenger taking a round trip to Europe from New York to London, say, <coughs> if you wanted to offset that carbon emission... <clears throat> You would have to recycle. I think it was forty thousand plastic bottles. Okay. You know, so there it's a minuscule thing. And if you actually rinse that plastic, you know, they tell you that you should rinse your recyclables when you do it. If you use hot water to re- to rinse that, you actually are putting more carbon in the atmosphere because okay. you had to have electricity to make that 
the, that hot water or you had to have interesting interesting <laughs> so i'm i'm i have i have a question about uh i there is a lot of people trying to do self-help and motivation and all this stuff which i i don't really i agree with like to just force everybody to motivate them to but this in this book i feel like your ideas i feel they are more scientific stuff about mm -hmm. about willpower so i don't yeah. feel this uh motivational uh, guru thing of mm -hmm. like how, how do you make the distinction of this uh, and did did you did you think about this topic before well you know i i've thought a lot about self-help books in fact um a friend of mine and i christopher buckley who's a very funny comic novelist um he and i wrote a a, a novel called a comic novel called god is my broker uh, the subtitle was um the seven and a half laws of spiritual and financial growth. <laughs> and it was making fun of the whole like Deepak Chopra and, and Anthony Robbins. And it was all making fun of these self-help people because, you know, they're peddling. It's like a religion. You're just peddling stuff. I mean, for the books, for the power of bad and for willpower, we, you know, it's I mean, the advice is all based on, on pretty on good scientific studies, you know, that they've with a control group and they test something and they see does it work, what works, what doesn't. And so we try to, you know, to constantly see, has this actually been proven to make any difference? And, you know, my co-author, Roy Bamas, he's really one of the best known, most quoted, you know, most cited social psychologists in the world. And he, had, he what, what I love about him, he's a real scientist and that he's always looking he's always willing to be contradicted you know if somebody says you know objects to oh, great well let's hear the objection maybe i was wrong let's let's find a better answer and that's what science is all about you know and that's what you know and the problem during the pandemic people said we're following the science as if science is one thing that is one set of uh, one dogma that you believe forever no it always changes you have to you know pay attention to the facts so this is how you kind of escape of this uh, guru thing and is yes. like use the science uh, yeah. method and like to approach this in the science way, not yes. like, oh, do these three things yes. to change your life. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and, but it actually, it, it, this can do this for you, can help you improve your life and can help you, but in, in a lot more polite and... <laughs> beautiful way that <laughs> this is step one step two <laughs> step right, we, know, we have a lot of tips do this do that you know we have like advice for couples and the power of bad about what what here's a list of things couples can do to you know to to minimize the bad things and accentuate the positive you know so yeah but but with saying all the science yeah, stuff, saying, yeah, it's all basic, which yeah. this is what people miss in their self-help yeah. books right no they've done a lot i mean there there have been you know all these studies that friends with couples tracking couples over a long time and seeing which couples get divorced which ones don't how do they behave how do they do that and with the willpower things what actually you know when do people actually have more self-control well how do they structure their lives so let's dive in a bit about your professional life how everything evolved and like how did you make money when you were younger what stuff how did it evolve now when you are older and what are you passionate about so tell me about uh, explain your professional life how it went um well um I guess when I was younger, I wanted to be a mathematician. 
And then I went to college. I went to Yale and I took a math, I took an advanced math class freshman year and realized I'm not meant to be a mathematician. Okay. <laughs> I was really in over my head. Um, and I ended up and I took a writing course from a writer named William Zinser. He has a great book called On Writing Well that was really the course he taught at Yale. And it was just how to do it. And I worked for the, for the school newspaper and I, and I edited a magazine there. And then I, you know, um, and I so and I was trying desperate to get summer jobs, and I so I was getting internships in newspapers, in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, where I grew up, and and in Minneapolis. At what age? Now we're talking about twenty four, twenty five. No, this is like nineteen, twenty, twenty one. You know, in the summer when I was at the university, um, I, I would get a, a summer job at a newspaper. And then, uh, then when I graduated, I, I went to work for a newspaper in New Jersey. Then I went to work for a newspaper in Washington, D.C. Um, then I became a freelance writer. I wrote for all kinds of magazines, you know, Rolling Stone. And they were paying you to yes. write there. Yes. Was it in the beginning good money or just barely for you to to survive? Um It was an it was decent money because I, I mean I would have a contract. Freelance writing is, is a difficult thing, you know. But I would have contracts with magazines. I would be a contributing editor, and they would give me so they would pay me, and it was enough to live on. And then in in 1990, when I was, um, I guess in my late 30s, um, I got a job at the New York Times, and and I worked there for more than 20 years, um, and I wrote. Um, and you, how many stuff you you were reading, uh, having stuff on the writing stuff two three times a week or every day? Like how often did you publish? I mean, it depended. Um, I, you know, part of the time I wrote for the magazine, the Sunday magazine. There would be long articles, but I, but I wrote col- But I I spent I guess you know more of the time writing columns, and the columns would be. I wrote a column about New York, uh, about New York City, called "The Big City." It was the name of the column, and that was twice a week. And then I wrote an op-ed column on the op-ed page that was twice a week. So this is how you learn how to write by writing in all these. Well, uh, but I, I learned, you know, I, I was, you know, of, you know, for many years before the New York Times, I was, I was always writing, yeah, you know. and um, and then I and and then I wrote a science column. That was the longest thing I wrote at the New York Times. So um, and. Uh, So you were always kind of uh, in love with science and this scientific method, or late in life you became well, like no, a no I was always f- interested as a kid. I love mathematics and I like science. Um, and you know, my father was was a professor, a university professor at the University of Pittsburgh in chemical engineering, and I thought you know it'd be a good life to be a professor. You know, but I realized when I got to college, I think that. I didn't um, that to go into one field so strongly. I, I would, I'm too much of a dilettante for that. I like what to, dilettante. A dilettante is? is someone who just dabbles in one thing and another instead of being a real specialist. Okay. Um, that I just didn't want to delve that deeply into one area. I like doing lots of things, and so journalism is perfect. It's very shallow. You know, you can. I mean, I've had to dig in deeply into subjects like for the negativity effect, for the power of bad, and, but. Um, but I get, then get to write about other things too. So, and so, and I just kind of fell into journalism that way. And, uh, um, and then, you know, then I was at the time, the New York times for 20 years. And then I started doing books, um, these, these books and, and also, um, and I now write for the city journal. 
So sure. with these uh, books, how, how long each book t- took you to write and to make these books? How long? Boy, I'm trying to. Th- um, I guess several years. You know it. Uh, and you are the person that wrote it. Uh, I wrote it with Roy Baumeister, and we wrote them together. You know, so I mean, he would supply. How does that work? Like you ha- write half of the book, you write together each page, and one person reviews the other. It was like- ba- it was basically. I mean, Roy's a very good writer, um, but he would basically write up the scientific part of it, and then I would, um, <clears throat> I would look for. Um, you know, way you know, kind of ways to illustrate the science stories about people like David Blaine to illustrate willpower, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then I would put it all together and write it, and then he would look over what I wrote, and we would go back and forth. But it was really we had a great time doing it. We never had any fights about um, at all. It, it sold a lot of copies. So, like, what? How, how does that? Uh, so you have how does? When you have a co-writer on a book, like how does that work with the money? You split the money, like how does that uh, work? Yeah, generally you just split the money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes if if one person did, and you did it with a publisher, so or you published uh, your. Uh, oh no, our publisher. We had you know publishers. Penguin Press published both books. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so the the, the all the, those books were profitable. Uh, to, yeah, you know that. I mean they. They've been translated into you know twenty four languages. You know we made the New York Times bestseller list, and uh, you know right back here I've got a whole bunch of these foreign editions of it. Oh, that's um, fine, Chinese, uh, yes, <laughs> and, you know, um, Estonian, you know, all these languages. So, um, so it's been nice to see that. So. And what was the opportunities that these books brought to you? Because I, I guess with a successful book like a lot of things come together like opportunity for you to talk or to conferences or like to collaborate with bigger names or to learn how did that help at all yeah you know i certainly i would give speeches about this you know and uh um yeah you know so so giving speeches but i mean my main thing is writing i really um so this is what you spend your whole day doing writing stuff right and i'm writing. you know i'm always writing about something new that's you know that's going on i mean this has been really helpful and i i'll write about new developments in these fields but i'm I'm, you know the last couple years i've been writing a lot about covid um but now i'm writing you know about i mean i'll probably start writing i mean i'll move on to other subjects now um but uh you know i'm very concerned with covid about that we that we uh, um, don't learn the right lessons from it. You know that we made these solutions yes, that made and things we don't worse. Understand what to, uh, and the people that made all the mistakes are not apologizing. They're not. We we you know I'm really scared that we're going to do even worse next time. That you know that they'll you know now people are talking about we should all wear masks during flu season. You know and <laughs> and you know that you know you mentioned you know I just had an article out about masks about this really the best study yet the most rigorous study of all the masks, you know, shows that they didn't make any difference in COVID. There's no evidence that they made any difference. So, but now you, in the city, where you publish? It's called City Journal. It's cityjournal.org. Okay, we're going to put the link in the description. Also, Mm -hmm. we're going to put the link of the books in the description. And do you have audio books for the, the, I saw saw those books. I'm going to start, um, because I have to be, I have to no, not eat food for 30 days. 
for that's my, one of my next videos and I have to be buried alive for 10 days. I, how are you? How, how do you feel about that? Uh, I'm excited, <laughs> <laughs> but I will read the willpower book. <laughs> Maybe it will help me get through all of those. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you. It was a pleasure to sit with you and learn from you. And I'm looking forward for the future with optimism. Well, thank you. It, it, it's been great talking to you and I, and I really wish you good luck with the project. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye, guys. Thank you for watching.